1: Switched on Pop. Welcome to Switch On Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. Today, I have a story from a songwriter. Hey, my name is J.P. Sachs. J.P. wrote the song If the World Was Ending with Julia Michaels. It's a record that was released in the before times in a way that kind of seemed to presage lockdown. And it resonated so widely that it catapulted up the charts and has now been nominated for a Song of the Year Grammy.
2: But if the world was ending, you'd come over, right? You'd come over and you'd stay the night. Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant if the world was ending.
1: I wanted to speak with J. P. not just because of the song's success, but because. He has this way of thinking about the practical implications and even morality of songwriting. He shared his insights with me by telling the story of If the World Was Ending.
3: The song is about imagining a world where your otherwise good reasons for not talking to the people you don't talk to are no longer relevant.
2: If the world was ending, you come over right, right.
3: We wrote it in July of 2019. We were writing about a hypothetical apocalypse in almost kind of craving there being some sort of world event that would get in the way of your otherwise logical emotional reasons for keeping people out of your life.
2: I was distracted and in traffic. I didn't feel it when the earthquake happened, but really
3: I was in traffic when the <laughs> July 4th earthquake in los angeles happened so i didn't feel it that moment reminded me of a lyric i had written in my journal from a year and a half ago which was if the world was ending you'd come over right and i had written that lyric as an attempt to finish a different song often my next song starts as a failed attempt at finishing the previous one so i remember that lyric After experiencing or not experiencing this earthquake in traffic and was trying to write that song at home and stopped myself mid creative process.
1: Around this same time, JP gets a notification on Instagram from his favorite songwriter, Julia Michaels. She's one of the most in demand session songwriters and has an amazing artist career herself. And for JP, who's just
3: at the beginning of his career, this is a big moment. I'm going to let JP take the story from here. So she posted a song of mine called 25 in Barcelona.
2: I'm halfway around the world with all these people Happy in a foreign language Where they don't know a thing about you I'm halfway around the world in Barcelona Singing songs to you for strangers and Trying not to think about you This wasn't supposed to be about
3: it was quite a serendipitous moment because when she posted it and I got a notification on my phone saying, Julia Michaels has tagged you in a story, I was listening to her EP what? with some friends on a road trip talking about how I thought she was the most influential songwriter of our generation. And then I get this notification. It was very odd. So I messaged her back, yep. being very enthusiastic. And we got talking and she suggested we write. I actually have the voice note from that night, labeled Save for Julia, mm. because I had this session coming up with Julia Michaels, who I'd never met and never worked with, but really wanted to bring my A-game, because she's my favorite songwriter. So I, I, I saved the idea, and I wanted to impress her. And If the World Was Ending was the day that we met the first time and wrote the first time. We sat at the piano, and I told her that idea, that If the World Was Ending, you'd come over right? idea. We started talking about where we were for the earthquakes, she was at a Shawn Mendes concert. Whoa,
0: wait, there's literally an earthquake right now. You can see that moving.
3: Earthquake happens, everyone's freaking out, and Julia being the cool cucumber she is is like, why is everyone tripping? This is normal. (laughs) All is going to be fine, which is why in her verse she goes, it didn't scare me when the earthquake happened.
2: I tried to imagine. happened but it really got me thinking
3: so we started talking about those stories we started thinking about that idea of as i said imagining that catastrophe replacing your reasons not to talk to somebody we were sitting at the piano and writing you know sitting beside each other on the piano bench for an hour and a half
2: but if the world was ending you come over right yeah you come over and you stay the night you would love it reason why you would even have to say goodbye if the world was you come, if the was ended, you'd
3: come right? right. came together mystically fast, like I I sang that
2: if the world was ending, you'd come over right,
3: and she just went straight into
2: you'd come over and you'd stay the night. Would you love me for the hell of it? <laughs>
3: As you were aware, she is a mystical songwriting angel, and
2: (laughs) she didn't intend
3: to be a part of If the World Was Ending. I was singing the song, but I kept messing up the back half of the second verse. How to think about you without it ripping my heart out? I couldn't get that Keynes right, and she was getting frustrated with me, so she was like, fine, let me show you. And she comes into the booth.
2: Oh, it's been year now. Think I out how, how to think about you without It ripping my heart out."
3: She sings it and I'm like, "If you think I'm going back in there, you're mad. Like you are singing the song.
2: And I know you know we know you down for forever and it's fine."
3: It's two people who are together in their imaginations, in their longing, nostalgic, loneliness, very much with themselves in a part but also in their heads thinking about nothing else but one another mm. like two people very separate and knowing that that separateness is important mm. but needing that otherworldly event to uh circumvent all of that rationality
2: but if the world was ending you come over you come over and you'd stay the night would you love me for the hell of it all our fears will be
3: irrelevant Julie and I are both in the wordy camp of songwriters. We, we, we try and fit as many words into the cadence as we possibly can because we have a lot to say. We knew we had this really wordy verse and we had this really wordy chorus and we knew we wanted it to have some sort of ascending lift of some kind. I know, you know, we know you are down for forever and it's fine So the pre-chorus is the last thing we wrote. And that melody very much just follows the chords. I'm just kind of walking up like B flat minor, A flat over C, D flat, D flat over F, F sharp major, nine. I just played that on the piano and just kind of sang along with it.
2: I know, you know, we know you weren't down.
3: Just walking up Mm -hmm. pentatonically. Mm -hmm. He goes, oh, that's it. Let's make it that. Just sort of set up that moment of space, that moment of suspended emotion landing on that question.
2: If the world was and you come over, right? You come over, right? You come over, you come over, you come over, right? Hmm.
3: So the post chorus of that song is an ad lib by Julia. She sang second chorus to the end. Twice, and then left. <laughs> so one of those times when she got to the end of the second chorus, we hadn't written the, you'd come over right, you'd come over, you'd come over, you'd come over right. We did not write that in the session. She sang that as an ad lib. And then after she left, I asked Ben if he could put that on the first chorus as well. And then I stacked to it and it became our
2: post-chorus. If the world was ending, you come over right Come over right. you come over you come over you come over right
3: mm-hmm. To me songs hit harder when they live in the questions because songs have always been a mode of sorting through my emotions but if i waited to figure them out before i wrote them they'd be really boring preachy songs that The songs exist in the questions I'm asking myself. They exist in the process of me trying to figure things out, not having them figured out. I got a lot of really lovely messages about the song pre-2020 because I think people forget that it felt like the world was ending a little bit then too. <laughs> we were speaking to a feeling in 2019 that was pondering that hypothetical catastrophe, pondering that world where you can call the people who are emotionally tumultuous for you, And it seems justified because, you know, you want to check on the people you love and you don't care about all the petty bullshit that gets in the way if there's some larger-than-life thing. I think it was relatable to a lot of people when that was a hypothetical. I think it was relatable to even more people when that became real literal. We started getting a lot of messages on Twitter accusing us of insider information. (laughs) Julie and I had some sort of insider scoop. So that was a that was first sign that the song was going to exist in, the, <laughs> in a little bit of a different light. And you know, all of us trapped at home, thinking about who we want to be trapped at home with.
2: can' be while I hold you tight No there wouldn't be a reason why we would even have to say if the world was: ending.
3: You know, I, I heard a lot of stories throughout the life of this song about people reaching out to maybe an estranged family member that they hadn't talked to. And and that certainly means more to me than people reaching out to exes who hurt them, but they want to reach out to the people who hurt them to make them feel better. I've really tried to be adamant about how this song is not in support of the texting of exes. <laughs> I am opposed to the texting of exes. I, I take a little responsibility for all exes texted in quarantine. <laughs> that isn't... That isn't the message of the song, nor do I think songs are ever suggestions. If anything, we should not be following in the footsteps of the way songs love because songs were written by songwriters and songwriters are historically not the most healthy in their relationships. But ironically, the two songwriters really hit it off that day. So we fell very madly in love. I am speaking to you from the home in which we share. There's more intertwined elements of my life in this song than I even know how to talk about all at once. Because I was kind of in a fuck it, I'm going to do whatever I want to do to make myself happy mood that day, because I was coming back from Toronto after finding out that my mom had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So sorry. And then the next day I flew to New York, had a meeting with my label about... Songs that were going to come out, and the next day flew to Los Angeles. Next day, wrote with Julia. So when I walked in that session, I was sort of in a the kind of I don't give a fuck <laughs> attitude that comes from getting that sort of life changing news, mm-hmm. and then to write that song, and then to fall in love with Julia, to have that song change my life, you know, to have Julia by my side in the last months of my mom's life, you know, my mom getting to see me having the beginnings of success in my career. You know, the last time she ever saw me perform was on Fallon with Julia. And I think, you know, if there's anything a a parent wants for their kid, it's to know that they're going to be loved and that they're going to be okay doing something that they love. So my mom got to see the beginnings of both of those things at the end of her life, which is all tied into this song, which was written three days after we found out about her cancer. So it's all it's all very oddly symbiotic to this day i mean my grandfather was nominated for a grammy in 97 and he won for best solo performance of the bach suites for solo cello I remember my mom getting that phone call that he won. I remember her screaming vividly, and I remember crawling around being confused as a (laughs) toddler, finding out about um, the Grammy nomination. I'm honored to welcome you to this year's unveiling of the nominees for the 63rd Grammy Awards. Next up,
1: Song of the Year. The nominees are Black Parade, The Box, Cardigan, Circles, Don't Start Now, Everything I Wanted, I Can't Breathe, If the World Was Ending.
3: The first thing in my mind was hearing her screaming on the phone and then calling my dad and then looking at Julie and being like, how on earth did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty special. you know. My first, my first big song, my first Grammy nomination, I get to share it with somebody I love. Mm. It, it's something I don't know how to talk about fully or describe yet, just how intertwined my personal life, my musical life, my love life all kind of wrapped around that moment in that song.
2: If the world then you come over
3: right. As a scholar of music, ending on a minor chord means uncertainty. It means questions. It means lack of resolution, all of which are very much present in this song. You know, we don't know if the coming over happened or not. So it felt right ending on that B flat minor and just singing just all stacks are gone, two people, no verb, right up front singing that final question over (laughs) B-flat minor 7. And that felt like the the right feeling to end on.
1: When we come back, JP breaks down the beauty and limitations of songwriting, talks about his new single with Maren Morris, and explains why his songs never seem to end.
0: Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. You've
1: written a song about both the power and also perhaps the limitations of a song. A little bit.
2: Love to big for a love song. If I try to sum it up, I know I get it wrong. Sometimes if it don't sound right, I apologize. I just said it cause it for Three minutes, it never fit in it. So I just take you line by
1: uh, your song Line by Line with Marin Morris. Can you tell me about how this song came together? I duet a
3: lot. Yeah. And the reason I duet a lot is because I love talking to people. And great songwriting sessions to me are just great conversations that turn into a song at the end. And I get attached to those songs and conversations and then want to stay a part of them. <laughs> So it's happened on a number of occasions where I've, I've written something that was either just meant for me or just meant for someone else and then mutually decided, like, how could one of us just take this song? Like, this has to be ours now. The duet with Marin wasn't, we didn't go in trying to write a duet. I didn't go in with Lennon trying to write a duet. I didn't go in with Julia trying to write a duet. I didn't go in with Macy trying to write a duet. It's all sort of, sort of happened because we both felt personally invested in the conversation and thought, you know, why not sing it together? It'll probably keep happening. So with Marin, she's married to an, another songwriter, Ryan, and obviously me and Julia. So we were talking about sort of what it's like to be uh, representing a love from both sides when both of you are a writer, and the the joys of that, the complications of that, how that can occasionally come with its land emotional landmines.
1: Yeah, I mean you 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 say in the bridge of the song that it's complicated having all your shit on display
3: it is complicated um it's also even more complicated when it's previous shit <laughs> shit that doesn't exactly apply to the current moment anymore because as i said earlier you know songs exist on a timeline and they don't cease to be true even if they aren't true in the moment you know songs that i wrote three years ago don't expire in their sincerity just because they're not feelings they don't have anymore but you know it's hard to hear somebody you love sing about shit that happened before you <laughs> So we were talking about that. And I think every line in that song is just something we, uh, we said in that conversation.
1: You said in the verse that there are things that I sing that I never have the confidence to say.
2: There are things that I sing that I never have the confidence to say. There are things I believe that I only figure out when I sit down to play.
1: Which feels both vulnerable. Also, I would think like songwriters... Hanging out with songwriters, dating songwriters, I think maybe as a listener, you might feel like, well, you almost have like some expert therapy level way of communicating. But does that line still feel true? Does it, do you still need songs to say, to communicate emotions that might feel otherwise too dangerous to say out loud? Yeah,
3: there are, there are some lyrics on my album that I wouldn't even feel comfortable saying to my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> there are some lyrics on the album that are so divulgent that like, they make people uncomfortable. But you know, I was watching an interview with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the uh, writer and star of, what's that show called? Fleabag. It's called Fleabag. Fleabag, and she said that she knows a scene's good when it scares her. Uh, And I was like, "Damn, that's real." And uh, it inspired a particular song uh, on my album, which uh, started out as a poem and just is lyrically frightening. But um, I think that's what makes uh, it—that's what gives it its value. You know, every profession has its hazards, and I think one of the hazards of being an artist and songwriter is that we have to be a little bit more transparent than we're comfortable with because that's what allows a listener to feel like they can access a part of themselves that they're a little scared of. And if I can write a song that gets you a little closer to the parts of yourself that you're afraid to look at, then. I think that song is doing its job.
1: But perhaps that's also why we shouldn't take action based on these songs. Like perhaps like there's the, the truth that we're looking at might be too close to being something you actually want to say. Like don't call the ex from 10 years <laughs> ago after listening to JP and Julia's song. That's a bad idea. But it's don't a, do it's, that. it's a useful uh, place to reminisce and where it might be fruitful in your relationships.
3: Yeah, I think they're they're tools of introspection, not suggestions at how to uh, how to approach your relationships. Well, in line by
1: line, you both Allude to the strength and power of songs and also subvert yourself. The chorus deals directly with this. On one hand, you say, you know, you apologize for things that you know don't sound so good because well, it just rhymed, and so you're kind of saying, Well, it wasn't true, it just I found that the song just happened to work.
2: Sometimes if it don't sound right, I apologize, I just said it because it rhymed
3: Sometimes there are insensitive truths that can show up in a song
2: mm.
3: where the meaning or the, the excitement of a lyric can take precedent over the part of us that considers how they are going to affect the people they may reference. Mm. Now, I've spent a lot of time considering what is and isn't crossing the line on details about lives that are not our own. And what I've landed on is that as long as we're talking about our feelings about a person and not the person themselves, then we are within range. Then we're, we're, <laughs> we're playing by the rules. But that to me is the line.
1: Do you feel you ever crossed that line in the past and felt you were too expository?
3: I don't think I've really ever shared anything about past relationships that reference specifically who those people are. Right. I think right. it's always just been about my feelings about those people. And those my feelings about those people are my own. Yeah but details about those people are theirs. And and I do think there is a moral structure with which we have to consider what we say to potentially millions of people. Right.
1: I, I once had a songwriter in my studio who, whose name I won't mention who was freaking out because they were about to release a song and they forgot to let the other person know and that relationship hadn't gone well. And there, I could see that moral quandary taking place before our interview trying to like text furiously call this person who doesn't want to hear from this other person
3: there is a, a responsibility. I mean you you know you listen to a good amount of my catalog and you don't know who those songs are about.
1: clueless, but there are probably seven people who might be a little more clued in or whoever you know whoever these songs are about
3: the, you know the people who know me and her at the same time, yes yeah. Yeah. And you know anything that I write about Julia because she's a little bit more of a public figure like right. it's all it's all okayed by her. <laughs> right right. I don't say anything about her that she doesn't uh, that she doesn't sign off on. <laughs> the, the
1: the landing that you all stick is that you got four chords, 3 minutes, you'll never fit in it. So I'll just take you line by line and I'll write about you for the rest of my life, which is both taking a jab at your own artistry and sort of saying I can't accomplish that much in a song and so I'm going to have to keep writing songs about you. So it's it's both beautiful and it's also saying Songs have limits, and I'm curious if the, those limitations—four chords, three minutes—do those constraints ever frustrate you in wanting to make larger, more nuanced artistic statements?
3: Yes. Um, a couple of thoughts on that. One, that lyric is a little bit of a lie because the song is more than four chords and more than three minutes, which I've always found kind of funny.
1: Yeah, you have some diminished chords in there.
3: You, you got—you're playing your jazz chops. I heard it. <laughs> and also, I think that lyric, you know, for the non-songwriter. Is, is just as much about recognizing that love, as big and beautiful as I would hope every everyone's life comes across, is more than we're ever going to be able to understand in any given moment. So songs are the way I understand my feelings at any given moment, but whether it's songs or any other method of, you know, being present in our emotions, I think that's just a recognition of If it's as beautiful and big as I think it's supposed to be, it's never going to feel like fully encapsulated in a single moment. Mm. But regarding do I feel limited by the structure of songs to express myself, yes and no. I've often said in sessions that if I could pick one superpower, it would be deciding any word could rhyme with any other word. Yeah. I also wish I spoke another language, just so I could, you know, have have the freedom to see, you know, what kind of rhyme schemes and meanings I could find in in, in different uh, a whole different world of rhyming opportunity. But I also don't care too much about things rhyming, so I I allow myself to break those rules because I'd rather it it feel genuine than it sound pretty.
2: Hmm.
1: I admire this statement that you said in another interview that you feel as though songwriters are guilty of romanticizing dysfunctional love, and you make it a personal mission statement to romanticize functional love. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to what made you realize this sort of dysfunction in the songwriting community and what made you want to approach especially love songs from a different perspective?
3: Yeah. So quick disclaimer, I do it all the time. I absolutely romanticize dysfunctional love. So I'm trying to balance out myself... Just as much as I'm trying to balance out the general piles of how many love songs I think are in the You Hurt Me But I Like It variety of songs. I just think there's a lot of that. Dysfunction is something we try and analyze because when something's a little dysfunctional, we talk to all our friends about it. We try and figure it out. We stay up at night stewing about how, you know, how this might be sorted out or why this is going the way it is or what my boyfriend's mother when he was eight years old said to him that gave him these intimacy issues that are now causing him to be afraid of being vulnerable with me. And because I understand that about his past, I need to be a little bit more loving and affectionate. And he'll show me that when he's all that business, Um, which is super real. All that to say, I think we spend more time trying to figure it out when it's dysfunctional than we do when it works. Mm. And I think songs come from the process, for most people, of trying to figure it out. You know, you walk into the room and you're like, oh, I can't stop thinking about this. It's the tension that we're always trying to work through, and that's where the songs come in. When something is beautiful, when something is easy, we don't stew on it as much. We don't sit with our journals, like, writing for hours, trying to sort through it. We just exist in it. But that lack of analysis makes the songs harder to find. Because... People always say it's easy to write breakup songs. You know, when I'm when I'm single I write more, when I'm heartbroken I write more. It's cuz you're trying to figure it out. And when you're trying to figure it out, you got more to say. And I'm guilty of that as anyone else. I think that's perfectly normal. But I think being a songwriter has allowed me to realize that for both my art and myself and my life, there's a lot of benefit for taking time to analyze the things that don't hurt as much and making sure that I, I, I lean into it, I dig into the nuance of the feelings I want just as much as the feelings I don't.
1: It's very clear that you think very intensely about the sort of ethics of your song and how you want it to be experienced. How do you want me to listen? How do you want people to listen to your work?
3: My hope is that my songs make you think about yourself in your own life and not really about me. Hmm. I kind of like... I'd kind of prefer I be out of the way. Not because out of an insecurity or a shyness, but because I think art's at its best when it has you thinking about yourself. It has you thinking about the people you love. It has you thinking about your own life. I'm of the belief that the more personal I can be in these songs, counterintuitively, I think the more out of the way I am. Because if I'm being generic, I think it runs the risk of a listener... Well, for me, when a song feels very generic in its language, I think about what they're trying to say. If something feels like it's said in such a personally unique way, I just hear it like someone's telling me a story, like a like a friend of mine is telling them something that happened to me, and then I'm thinking about how I relate to that. <laughs> the same way my favorite movies are often stories that I have nothing in common with, and yet am moved to tears. There's no reason songs shouldn't play by the same rules. You know, the more personal, the more universal is the cliche that sums up what I'm trying to say here. So I guess that's the way I want people to listen. I want, I want people to listen and I would hope that it, it has them in their in their own feelings and their own introspection less than it has them trying to dig into mine.
1: I also am guessing that you aren't the kind of person that loves a film where someone walks
3: off into the sunset. <laughs> I mean, I have watched The Bachelor from time to <laughs> time, so I'm, I'm not fully caught up in my own pretentiousness. <laughs> a
1: lot of your songs end without any sort of nice little conclusion. You, you don't like to wrap things in a bow. Like, if you listen to A Little Bit Yours. You're not mine
2: anymore And I'm still a little beyond.
1: The Few Things
2: Come closer, come closer Same Room We can't even be in the same
1: Golf on TV.
2: Some watch golf on TV, and neither of those things make sense to me.
1: All of them seem to end with this uncertainty. Like we're almost in an art film and you're getting like, oh, I, I like it. I want more. Like, don't let this end.
3: I think there's two reasons for that. I think there's an emotional reason that I I just don't think songs are about conclusiveness. And then I think there's a musical reason, which is that because I was brought up with jazz hitting like, you know, a big tonic at the end of the song would have got me some side eyes from jazz musicians. And I think there's still a little jazz musician in the back of my head judging me for not using enough chords at all times. So I need to let that voice win occasionally by not choosing the most obvious option. That's fair. Yeah. And still, like when I go 1, 5, minor 6, 4 in a song, that voice yells at me, being like, you boring, basic songwriter. <laughs> um, and I'm like, dude, no one cares. No one cares about how weird or like off-the-cuff your time signature or chord structure is. People care if you're telling the truth and the emotions of these chords match the emotion of the song. Because the last thing I want to do is try and impress you with the chord change that distracts you from the integrity of what I'm saying. And that's like my golden rule with these songs, is everything musically is about supporting the emotion of a lyric. And if it doesn't do that, then it's getting in the way.
1: You did an interview with iHeart, and you talked about how... There's a lot of songs about the beginning and the painful end of a relationship, but you mm-hmm. like to talk about that awkward middle, all of that stuff, the minutia of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. What compels you to want to write about these
3: middles? Well, if you don't mind me asking, are you in a relationship at the moment? I'm married. Okay. Would you say that there is beauty and tension in the minutiae of being in it without it having to be... A th- starting or somehow leading to you breaking up.
1: Isn't that the best part?
3: It's totally the best part. And I think it's underexplored. The push and pull of being in the details of loving somebody are, to me, the most exciting part to get to in the middle of a song. Songs, to me, are all about relationship, either relationship with myself or relationship with somebody else. And there is so much more meat on the bone to me to explore What's happening when we've decided to be in it Hmm. already? Not necessarily always what's happening when we've just started being in it, or we're deciding to leave it.
1: Maybe beyond just your jazz inclinations, that plays into the sort of consistent trend that your songs don't quite end. You don't like you don't hit the landing and be like, "Up, da da da, boom,
3: and we're out." No, songs are not answers, and I really, (laughs) I really feel strongly that also songs are not suggestions, and I, I try and say that a lot to like. You know, we look for songs for solace. We look to them for connection. We look to them to feel, you know, like we are not alone in our human experience. But I don't think we should look to them to tell us how to act. I'm in the middle of a relationship that I love, that I feel so supported in and so like mutually involved and entangled in something that we're both so excited about. But that doesn't mean we don't fight. That doesn't mean there isn't all kinds of push and pull and tension that there is for me to explore as a writer, you know, in a single moment on a Wednesday night, talking about something somewhat challenging or talking about something beautiful. Like those can all be songs. The only thing I really know how to write about is wherever I'm at at any given moment. You know, the same things I'd write in my journal. So right now I'm in the middle of something. I hope to continue being in the middle of it for a very long time. So that's sort of my only option.
1: (laughs) Tell me about what's next. What can people expect?
3: Yeah, so I'm putting out an album first half of this year. I've got a couple singles coming out on that before that happens, but really soon. And, you know, we talked about a little bit over the last hour, the songs that scare me being the ones that I knew had to come out. And I'm curious to hear from you. Because I think you will know immediately, upon listening to the album, the lyrics that I'm talking about being a little bit scary.
1: JB, it's really fun to talk with you. I, I, I really do appreciate the sort of earnestness with which you think about your craft. Thank you. Switched on Pop is produced by Nate Sloan, Bridget Armstrong, and me, Charlie Harding. We're engineered by Brandon McFarland, except this week by Bill Lance. Our illustrations are done by Iris Gottlieb, social media by Abby Barr, and our executive producers are Nishat Karwa and Hannah Rosen. We're produced by Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I want to say a real big special thanks this week to Megan Lubin, who hopped in to provide some additional production, as well as Jessica Powell from Audio Shake AI for helping us out with today's music. You can, of course, find our show anywhere you get podcasts, switchedonpop.com, and you can find us on social media at switchedonpop on Twitter and Instagram, where we love to get your comments and thoughts. Uh, We'll be back again next week with something really special in the Grammys category. And until then, thanks for listening.
0: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you?